Welcome to the Kenosha City Church Podcast. In this message, John Favau teaches through Titus chapter 3, where you will learn how to be ready to do good work. Enjoy the message. Main point today, the the title of this is Be Ready for Good Works. Our text today is uh, Titus chapter 3, which is the last chapter in Paul's letter to Titus. It says, Remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind always showing gentleness to all people. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, He poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs of the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law because they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a divisive person after a first and second warning, for you know that such a person has gone astray and is sinning. He is self-condemned. We're going to focus on verses 1 to 11. I didn't read 12 through 15. 12 through 15 are Paul's uh, final instructions regarding his co-workers in the gospel. Uh, This is something Paul does at the end of some of his letters. Pastor Will did an absolutely amazing job with an entire message about this on May 21st. The title of that message was, Do You Love the Church? And you can find it in the Empire's Volume 4 section on the Messages page on the church website or the KCC app. Um, And this is talking about Paul giving final instructions. Greet this one, tell this one to do this, whatever, bring this one to me. Um, And it's one of those things where you read through it and you think, okay, he's saying these things and that's all fine and good, but it's... Why is it here? Will did an absolutely fantastic job on that. I highly recommend you go watch that message. Um, it also goes to show that the parts of the scripture that we're tempted to skip over as extra are there for good reason. Today is the last message in our mini-series on Paul's letter to Titus. Paul is writing to tell him how to set up and administer church government and to instruct on how the body is supposed to behave and how elders are supposed to lead. To recap a little, In chapter 1, Paul instructs him to appoint elders and then describes in great detail the qualifications for these men. And as Pastor Andy explained two weeks ago, the purpose of appointing elders is to govern the church as shepherds to protect the flock and to prevent chaos by fostering unity. Paul says uh, in chapter 1, verse 10, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. The high-level point here is that even this early in the timeline of the church, there were plenty of people who were trying to throw a wrench into the works, both Jews and Gentiles. In chapter 2, Paul explains to Titus how everyone should behave, dividing them up demographically and giving specific instructions for each group. In chapter 3, where we are today, Paul begins with a summary statement on how Christians should behave. In all three chapters, he mentions the point is that we are to be... uh, He he mentions that the point is that we are to be obedient to do good works. Uh, The three main points for today are, one, how we should be, two, why be that way, and three, how not to be. Um, And before I continue, 
you may notice some similarity in the points that I'm talking about as to what Pastor Andy spoke about last week. There was no collusion, I promise. I actually wrote this thing and finished it Saturday before last Sunday's service. So I'm looking at some of the same things he said, but I'm looking at them from a different view. Um, so point number one, how we should be. Chapter 3 starts with Paul giving Titus general instructions that cover everyone. Uh, verses 1 and 2, remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. There's a lot there. We need to break it up into pieces and discuss each before bringing it all back together. It begins with remind them. And I'm going to be using phrases from this section over and over again that always remember it starts with remind them. Um, the term, uh, the them are the believers in the church as Titus is over. We need to remember that this is not so much written to the congregations as to Titus. As instructions to him for the elders, he sets up in the churches as to how to lead the people. That's not to say that it's not for us. In fact, it would be best if the church read these things and did them on their own. I'm sure Paul expected the letter to be read to the congregations. It wasn't an easy thing to be a Christian in Paul and Titus's day. The Jews weren't happy that some Jews were converting to Christ. And neither were the Romans very excited about this new monotheistic religion that refused to worship Caesar as a god and found idol worship abhorrent. And to be a Christian in Crete was another challenge on top of it. The Romans considered Christianity to be a threat because it challenged the established order. I got this from Wikipedia. It says, although it is often claimed that Christians were persecuted for their refusal to worship the emperor, general dislike for Christians likely arose from their refusal to worship the gods or take part in sacrifice, which was expected of those living in the Roman Empire. If you remember Pastor Andy's now semi-famous demon meat sermons, this is part of what was going on. Yeah, I know. I had to mention it. Um, adding to the difficulty of deciding whether or not to eat the meat dedicated to idols was the societal pressure not only to do so, but to celebrate those idols. So it's against this backdrop that Paul tells Titus, remind them to submit to rulers and authorities to obey. Is he saying to compromise and join in the Roman practices, to participate in idolatry, and to worship Caesar? Not at all. In the things where earthly authority tells you to go against the commands of God, you are under no compulsion to comply. How you resist, however, remains important. Refusal to comply with a command that goes against God still must be done respectfully and in a way that honors God. If the emperor, if the emperor tells you to bow down and worship him, the answer is no. The consequences may be really bad. But in this case, you have to choose between obeying man and obeying God. This is not what Paul's talking about. What he's referring to here is where submitting and obeying does not conflict with God's commands. In these cases, the obligation is to comply with and obey the authorities regardless of whether or not you agree with them. Why? Among other things, it is that as people who take the name of Christ, we are literally representatives of our king. Some people use the term ambassadors, and I think Pastor Andy said this last week. I looked up the word and the second definition I liked, it says, the term ambassador is used informally for people who are known without national appointment to represent certain professions, activities, and fields of endeavor. So that, I say that, it applies to us pretty well. We are ambassadors for Christ. Our king has instructed us to comply with earthly authority when it is in line with him. Our obedience to the earthly authority, therefore, is also obedience to God. 
As ambassadors, people look at us to represent Christ and Christianity, and they are just waiting for something they can point at and say hypocrite. So I do have a small story. Um, and I want to just rabbit trail a tiny bit before I go on. Um, I became a believer, I became a follower of Christ in the summer of 2003. And as I told the, the team this morning, I'm pretty sure we're like right about at my 20th anniversary, okay? Now, that's great. That's a huge, big deal. At the same time, I was an alcoholic. I was drunk every night. And God took that away from me on the spot. From that day forward, I never had another drink. That's our God, and I just wanted to give him the praise for that. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. Hallelujah. All right, so... Back to our story, back to being ambassadors, representing, representing our king. Um, my wife became a believer two years later. Those were two long years. Um, but before I continue, I have, I have permission to tell this story. <laughs> um, being new believers, we were a little gung-ho about everyone knowing about it. Uh, and among other things, we got one of those plastic fish symbols that was so popular to put on the cars back then. And we put one on her car. One day I had to follow her somewhere. I don't remember why. Uh, and it started out okay until I realized I was having a hard time keeping up. To be honest, I was kind of impressed that someone could get a 2002 Chevy Malibu to go like that. <laughs> then someone cut her off and she leaned on the horn and I could see her yelling at the other driver. Yeah, you can picture this, right? <laughs> yelling at the other driver who, in her defense, was in the wrong. The following conversation is to the best of my ability to remember. It's been, oh, like I said, almost 20 years. We got home, I asked her, what was the deal with the crazy driving? And I got a blank look. I said, you were over the speed limit most of the time, and I thought you were going to get into it with that one guy. And she said something like, oh, yeah? Well, he did cut me off. I said, and I said, well, I know he did, but you remember, we have a Jesus fish on the back of the car, right? If we're telling people we're Christians, we kind of can't do the whole road rage thing anymore. She said, yeah, I guess you're right. She just hadn't really thought about it, and, and that's, we kind of have that problem. We don't think about this ambassadorship of ours. So we agreed to take the fish off the car for a little bit while she got used to things. <laughs> All right. My point in telling this story is only to show how easy it is for us to forget that we are literally on stage from the moment we step out the door of our homes until we return, and to our families all the rest of the time, too. We are ambassadors of the king, and we are instructed here to comply with and obey the authorities when their requirements don't violate the commands of God, regardless of whether or not we agree with them. If we don't obey God in this, we misrepresent Christ, meaning that we have misused his name, which puts us on the wrong side of the third commandment. I'm going to use the Amplified Bible version. I hope we have the slide for that. Um, for this, because it adds extra explanation in brackets to make things clear. So this is Exodus um, chapter 20, verse 7. Uh, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And then explanation says, that is irreverently in false affirmations or in ways that impugn the character of God. And then back to the verse. For the Lord will ho not hold guiltless nor leave unpunished one who takes his name in vain. Explanation. Disregarding its reverence and power. When we intentionally rebel in matters that are not in conflict with God's commands, we misrepresent him and put ourselves under the judgment of this command. But also, 
There's the reputation of Christianity itself to be concerned about. We are supposed to be different. Anyone can rebel. Obeying may not be so easy at times. People should see that we are not like everyone else, that we respect people in authority, that we take our calling seriously, and that we truly mean for the world to see what Christ is doing in us. Verse 1 continues, to be ready for every good work. This term, good work, often causes confusion. Some will hear this and say, but I thought we were saved by grace through faith and not good works. This is correct. Paul is not talking about salvation here. Anyone who's been in the faith for a while is probably familiar with Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which read, For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. But what often gets left out is the rest of the thought, which is Ephesians 2, 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared ahead of time for us to do. Works can't save you. But the believer who has been saved by grace through faith should be motivated to do good works as a response to the salvation that God has given them. God has prepared these good works for us to do in advance, meaning he anticipates us doing them. These things are one of the reasons Christianity is unique among the religions. This idea of good works being because of what we received, not being the cause of what we receive. Okay? Other religions require you to work your way to God or whatever they have instead of God. In Islam, for instance, the belief is that when you die, your good works are put on one side of a scale and your bad on the other. If your good outweighs your bad, you're said to receive paradise. If they don't, you go to the other place. Instead of doing good works in response to a gift of salvation in Islam, the Muslim's whole life is like Indiana Jones in the Raiders of the Lost Ark where he's running and that giant rock is rolling after him to crush him. You're running from the weight of your sin and hoping to do enough good works to balance it out. No Muslim can ever have the assurance of salvation in this life. In Hinduism, there is no salvation per se. There are three paths to something called moksha, which is the liberation from the cycle of birth, death, and reincarnation. So they believe that based on how you did in this life determines what your next life is going to You keep being reincarnated until you get so good that you finally top out of the system, I guess. Um, but again, this is, this is a, a works, it's accomplishment. You have to accomplish it. There are three paths, they say, to this, but it's all you doing something to get there. And in Judaism, they believe salvation is obtained by honoring God through observing his precepts. In Judaism today, there's no single doctrine of salvation or redemption. There are different interpretations of what it means to be saved and how to achieve salvation, but they are all based on works. Isaiah 64, 6 says, All of us have become like something unclean, and all our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. All of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities carry us away like the wind. There's literally nothing we can do to get to heaven any other way than Jesus. All the good works we could pile up to try to get to God would not amount to anything more than an insult to the finished work of the cross. Only biblical Christianity has a risen Savior who came to earth as a man and lived a perfect and sinless life, 100% man, 100% God. He voluntarily gave up his life as payment for our sin, the payment we can never make. And then defeating death, he rose again, proving he was the one who could pay the price for our sins. We can do nothing to earn this or add to it. It is a free gift that is offered to us by God. Our part is simply to believe and follow Jesus. 
And it is out of gratitude for this amazing story and gift that we are and are expected to be motivated to do good works. The works don't save us. The works are what we do out of thanks for having been saved. If you feel no real motivation to do good works, look inside. Be sure you're really in the faith. And if you're sure, then try to figure out why you're so far from where God wants you to be. Be sure that you're not just paying lip service or going through the motions for some reason. The Lord says that at the judgment, some are going to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. Don't let that be you. Okay, back to the phrase, to be ready for every good work. So remember, remind them to be ready for every good work. Here's one for the parents. You know when there's something in your house that obviously needs doing. The kitchen needs to be cleaned up or the laundry or toys put away or something spilled or the dog has had an unfortunate accident and your kids walk past it, all of it, like it's not there, repeatedly. And then you find yourself debating whether to tell them to do it or just do it yourself because it's less hassle. Of course, you end up making them do it and then you suffer through the eye rolls and the huffing and puffing. Is this really how we want God to see us? Like teenagers who leave the dishes on the counter when the dishwasher is literally two feet away. If we see something that needs doing and we have the ability and the resources, we should do it without waiting for God to put it on our hearts. And we should want to do these things for God in order to display to him our gratitude for his grace and his mercy towards us. Jesus suffered the horror of being separated from the Father and taking on all of the sin of humanity, past, present, and future for us. Think about that for a second. We all know the horrors humanity is capable of. How many often unthinkable sins are we even talking about here? Even just the worst ones are uncountable. Then... Remember that while we tend to grade sins on the degree to which they upset us, sin is a binary proposition to God. There are two states, sin and not sin. Every sin is an egregious affront to the glory and perfection of a holy God. Imagine you had to jump into a sewer up to your neck for a couple of hours to save someone. Now realize that that would be absolutely nothing compared to what Jesus had to experience to make a way for us. Jesus took on our sin and died on the cross for us, which is far and away, without a doubt, the ultimate good work. Our response should automatically be to do what we can in the way of good works to show our gratitude. Uh, verse 2 doesn't work without verse 1, so I'm going to read them both. Remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. So verse 2 starts with, to slander no one, to avoid fighting. The definition of slander is a false statement spoken about another person that is harmful to their reputation. It is a form of defamation, which is the act of damaging someone's reputation through false statements. The counterpart to slander is libel, which is the written falsehood leading to defamation. Understand that in this church we see them as equally egregious sins and will tolerate neither. Both share these same basic requirements. It must be false, must be about the person's character, business, or profession, and it must be done with malice. Now for slander, the other two requirements are it must be spoken, and it must be said to a third party. So slander is, I'm talking to you about him, and it's a lie. 
libel must be done in writing or some other permanent manner, such as an audio recording or a video or something. The third party is the expected reader or listener or viewer. So in this case, I'm writing a blog post about him that's not true, knowing you and everybody else is going to read it. Examples of slander. Accusing someone of a crime they did not commit. Spreading rumors, which is something you only think is true versus the fact, which is something you know is true, about someone's sexual history. Saying that someone is incompetent at their job, making false statements about someone's business practices. Examples of libel. A newspaper article that falsely accuses someone of a crime. A blog post that falsely claims that someone is incompetent at their job. A book that falsely portrays someone as a bad person. And these are just some examples. There's a million ways to commit this sin. Um, <coughs> excuse me. While we're here, we also need to talk about gossip, okay? All three of these are significant issues in the capital C church and have been since the very beginning. They are all rooted in an uncontrolled spirit that means to do harm, and this is unbecoming of someone who takes the name of Christ. Gossip is when one person talks to another person about a third person. It is idle talk, generally negative newsmongering, or rumors about others, so it's very similar to slander. It's frequently framed as a concern, as concern or sometimes much to our shame, a prayer request. If you have a concern about a person, go talk to that person, not to someone else about that person. Check Matthew 18. Have a look at that. There's instructions there for how to deal with when you think there's something wrong with somebody, okay? If you have a prayer request for that person, unless they have asked you to share something, take it directly to the Lord and not to everybody else. Not until you've talked to that person. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12.20, I am afraid I may come and somehow find you not as I want to find you, and that you may find me not as you want to find me. Perhaps there will be quarreling, jealousy, anger, selfishness, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorderly conduct. Look at what slander and gossip are lumped in with here as more or less equal offenses. Quarreling, jealousy, anger, selfishness, arrogance, and disorderly conduct. Some translations say, of, say to speak evil of no one instead of to slander no one. The word in the original Greek here that's being translated as speak evil or slander is the very same word that is normally translated blaspheme. We're literally being told here not to blaspheme against each other. God is serious. Exodus 20, 16 reads, do not give false testimony against your neighbor. This is the ninth of the Ten Commandments. Imagine you were to look around now in church or out in the lobby later, and you see these things happening, quarreling, jealousy, anger, selfishness, arrogance, and disorderly conduct. What would you say? Knock it off. We shouldn't be doing these things or something to that effect, right? We're good on the not quarreling, fighting part of the phrase. So then why do we tolerate gossip and slander and libel? That's a trick question. We don't. We will not tolerate these things here at Kenosha City Church. And if they happen, they will be dealt with in accordance with the scriptures teaching on church discipline. These things are dishonoring to the Lord. They're in direct violation of what we have been instructed. And they are simply voluntary and intentional sin. And Kenosha City Church will never wink at sin. James gives us the bottom line on this in James 1.26. If anyone thinks he is religious 
without controlling his tongue. His religion is useless, and he deceives himself. Second half of verse 2 reads, again, remind them, to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. I looked at this and thought, what am I going to say about being kind that is not painfully obvious? And then immediately a thought came to me. Those of you on social media are probably more aware of this idea, but it's the idea that Christians are the worst tippers. It's something you hear all the time from food service personnel. I see it on Instagram, Twitter, etc. And often they're saying that these Christians are coming straight out of Sunday service and then speak harshly to them for the slightest reason and don't tip correctly. Now I'm not saying you have to leave a 50% tip, but for the sake of the kingdom, don't leave a lousy tip. Don't make us look bad, right? Don't write a snarky note on the receipt about the slow service or about the mistake that the also human waiter made. Okay? Here's the problem. Go back to the ambassador thing from earlier. If we're the Christian in the restaurant being mean-spirited and unforgiving right after coming out of Sunday service, what's even going on here? Are we rightly taking the name of Christ? Or are we misrepresenting God and Christianity in the church? When we do these things, we're inoculating people against the gospel by making sure they'll never listen to people like us. We're literally doing the opposite of our mission. That's the enemy's mission. The verse says to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people, not just the people in the church building on Sunday morning. If we're going to claim Christ as Lord, we need to act like we really believe it. If anything, the wait staff should be so happy to have served us, so blessed by us, that they want to know why we're different. The bad driver who cut you off should be impressed by your calm, or at least confused. To go over all of verse 2 one more time. To slander no one, to avoid fighting, to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. Recently, my wife was messaging with someone, no one in this room, no one in this church, but someone who is a believer. And the other party attempted to start gossip. And she said to me, you know, I wish people would come together for the gospel the way they come together for gossip. I was just blown away. I was like, I'm going to use that. <laughs> so, just to sum this up, we're reminded to submit to rulers and authorities to be ready and willing to do good works to avoid disparaging others in any way, to avoid quarreling or fighting, and to be kind and gentle with everyone. This sounds familiar. To put it another way, to act like Jesus, okay? We're to let our behavior distinguish us from the society around us, not to have it make us blend in, and we're to do that by being like Jesus. And again, Paul's instruction to Titus here is for the elders in the churches in which he is involved. They are to guide and instruct the congregations and make these things so. All right, point number two, probably thought I was never going to get there, right? Point number two. Point number one was about how we should be with Paul telling Titus to instruct the elders how to lead the churches. Point two, why be that way, is simply about why. Verses three through seven read, For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, he poured out his Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, 
so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. In verse 3, Paul reminds us that before the Lord saved each of us, we were self-centered and evil. As long as we are in this life, we will still have those tendencies, but without the restraint of the Holy Spirit in us, we indulged it and did whatever we wanted. This was particularly true for the people in Crete, where Titus was setting up these churches. As Pastor Andy said, um, they were a really rough bunch. So much so, in fact, that there were actually sayings about them in the day. We still have the term Cretan today, C-R-E-T-I-N. I looked it up, and the definition is a very stupid or contemptible person. I thought that was kind of rough, but that was not, that's not my definition. That was, that's what it was, okay? It isn't far from what people thought of the, the Cretans at the time. Uh, in, in chapter 1, Paul says, One of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. The writer of this saying is a man named Epimenides. I, I practiced that for you guys. <laughs> Who lived in the 7th century BC. This means that 700 years later, the Cretans were still known for these things. They still had the worst reputation around. The Greeks actually had a verb that said to cretize, which meant, and it was another way of saying to lie. Okay? So they literally had a word for lying named after these people. So the Cretans had a reputation for not being fine, upstanding people, and Paul takes the opportunity to put himself and all of us in the same bucket. Now, did Paul run around lying a lot when he was Saul the Pharisee? Probably not. But he was well known by the church for his zealous persecution of them, enough that they feared him even after he was converted by Jesus on the road to Damascus. Were you or I renowned for lying or persecuting Christians? Probably not. But before God got a hold of us, each of us certainly had our sins. Uh, verse 3. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. The word foolish implies lacking understanding and being ignorant of God and his attributes. This speaks to the complete difference between knowing of God and actually knowing God. Disobedient is about not believing, refusing to believe, being unpersuaded, and being obstinate about it. And deceived points to having gone astray and wandering. Enslaved by various passions and pleasures describes being never gratified by the things that seem like what you want, but not figuring it out and continuing after them anyway. Living in malice and envy simply means living in depravity and not wanting to see the success of others because of the jealousy it'll cause in you. Detesting, I hate, sorry, um, hating, hated by others. Um, this one is interesting because it can also be um, translated as, um, oops, sorry, hateful. So it's hated by others and hateful. The word kind of really just is all-encompassing of hate. Um, and then de detesting one another. This one's interesting because... Um, Theologian Adam Clark describes this as, as follows in his commentary, there was no brotherly love, consequently no kind offices. In other words, nobody was nice to each other. They hated each other, and self-interest alone could induce them to keep up civil society. So the only reason they were even decent at all to each other was because they wanted other people to be okay with them. 
Um, but the next sentence that Clark writes is, this is the true state of all unregenerate men. Uh-oh. That's us. That's everybody. Okay? Then he writes, the words which the apostle uses in this place give a finished picture of the carnal state of man. Again, carnal being before receiving Christ. Um, and they are not true merely of Cretans and Jews that then were, but of mankind, all mankind in every age and country. They express the wretched state of fallen man. Paul's reminding his audience, primarily Titus and his elders, but also everyone who reads the letter, that we were just as bad in various ways as the Cretans. Just like them, our morality was subjective and not that of God. We did whatever we wanted. When there is no objective morality, which means one morality from God, all you have is subjective morality, which is everyone decides what is moral and what is not for them. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And aside from the primary issue of denying God, the other problem with this is what if I think it's moral to do something and you don't, or vice versa? What if I think I can do X to whatever and you think that's wrong? Okay, How do we reconcile that? Well, we can't. Judges 17, 6 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what, whatever seemed right to him. This is in the middle of a passage describing the idolatry of Micah and then of the entire tribe of Dan. And it doesn't get better from there. Idolatry is rampant in ancient Israel. It's the same whether it's in ancient Israel, ancient Crete, or modern America. Everyone doing what they want results in grievous sin and chaos. And as Adam Clark described verse 3, the only thing that even kept Cretan society civil was self-interest. In other words, no one was valuing others. No one was following God. Instead, they just treated others well enough so that they themselves weren't mistreated. What's all this saying? Basically, that before God came to save us, before we were saved, we were completely depraved and worthy of nothing but the penalty for our sin, which is death. After all this, the word but is a welcome change in the narrative, because that's getting pretty heavy. Verses 4 and 5 read, When the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy through the washing and regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. It is hard to imagine the love of God, that after all we've just been told, about who and how we were before we each met Jesus, he loved us enough to even send Jesus. Why are the elders told earlier in the chapter to teach the congregation to be kind to everyone? Because it is a reflection of what God has done for them. It is a way to show the love of God to others. As God has been kind to us, we should be kind to others to honor him. The word behind this phrase is love for mankind will be familiar to most, philanthropia. And it literally means just that, benevolence or philanthropy. This attribute is part of the actual character of God, meaning that in men, it is the image of God. In us, it is to be a reflection of God, a way for us to allow, uh, uh, sorry, a way for us to show God to those around us. Verse 4 again, but when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. At least one commentator has translated this word philanthropia as pity. God looked upon us and saved us. He felt pity. He had mercy. He saved us from the depths of our depravity, not because we could ever deserve it, but because of his perfect love and kindness. Jesus shows this in the parable on forgiveness in Matthew 18, 
uh, verses 23 to 27. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell down before him and said, Be patient with me, and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him, and forgave the loan. Notice that the master never said, Okay, but you better pay me back. Why? Because he knew the servant never could. This would be the equivalent of me owing the IRS a million dollars. Just take me to jail. It's not going to happen, right? That's us, okay? We've got the debt we can never pay. He forgave the loan out of compassion. That's God. The nature of God is love. One of the expressions of this is compassion. We're reminded again in verse 5 that good works don't save us, can't save us, and that only by the grace and mercy of God can we be saved. Paul is sure to make this clear that it is never by works of righteousness, but only according to the mercy of God. Then, after telling us of the mercy that saved us, he tells us how? Through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. The washing literally means a bath or baptism. But be clear, the baptism of the convert is emblematic. It is not the means of regeneration and has no power. It is a symbolic washing away of sin. Mark 16, 16 says, Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. The baptism doesn't save any more than works do. Baptism is a matter of obedience and showing the church that you have turned to Christ. But the concept of baptism here is actually symbolic. The baptism being referred, here, referred to here is the regeneration or renewal. The word translated regeneration also infers renovation, which I like because when you picture a renovation, you think of gutting a dated, damaged old house and making it like new inside. That's a good picture of what's going on here. The Holy Spirit is renovating the believer from the inside. We're not perfect people, but people being made new. Verse 6 is a phrase that really should be included with verse 5. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. The whom is the Holy Spirit. Through the completed work of Jesus on the cross, God gives us his Holy Spirit when we repent of our sin and turn to Jesus. So why does Paul drop verses 4 and 5 in right after giving instructions on how to remind people to act and the reminder of how we, were all, we all were before Jesus got a hold of us? He does it to remind us firmly why we are to be as he instructs. Why should we be this way? Submitting to and obeying authorities, being ready for every good work, respectful of others, kind and gentle. Why are we left on earth after we've come to Christ? To make disciples and to become more like him. What was Jesus like? He was submitted to the Father. He obeyed the authorities even to the point of death. He did every good work, feeding, healing, teaching, even raising the dead. He was never disrespectful, even when he was being direct with someone. And with the, perhaps the occasional exception of the Pharisees, he was always kind and gentle. And I would even go so far as to say that perhaps the harshness with which he spoke to the Pharisees was a kindness because they needed something to snap them out of their arrogance. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. 1 John 2.6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 
Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. I looked these up in a list on a Bible study site looking for verses about becoming more like Jesus. Among these and others, verses 1 to 15 of Titus chapter 3 was one of the passages listed. Not only are we instructed to become like and imitate Jesus, but we should want to do so out of sheer gratitude and thankfulness for his amazing salvation. Paul tells Titus and his elders to remind the church how to be, to remember who they were, and to become more like Christ. But there's more. Verses 6 to 8 read, He poured out his Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. Thankfully, we're not left to become more like Jesus on our own. That's a good thing because we can't. We don't have it in us. As hard as it is to hear, our tendency on our own is toward evil, not good. But God poured out his spirit on us. He gave us his Holy Spirit to dwell in us, not temporarily, temporarily as what happened before Jesus came to earth, but permanently. Galatians 5, 23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. God gave us his Holy Spirit to justify us, to guide us, and to give us the gift of eternal life with him. And we are to yield to the power of his Holy Spirit and become more like Jesus. Verse 8 goes on to say, This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. This saying is trustworthy is a way of underscoring the importance of what's just been said. Paul is attempting to hit it home with Titus here that this bit of doctrine I just gave you is of utmost importance. The next part says, I want you to insist on these things. The Greek word that the, that the CSB translates insist is defined in the Strong's Concordance as affirm constantly. And I wanted to say that because when you insist on something, you could insist on something once and then be done. Um, but with the firm constantly, the picture's a little bit different. It's an ongoing process that you need to continually perform, and that's really the picture here. Paul is telling Titus that the church needs to be told this all the time, that it needs to be insisted upon on an ongoing basis. The reason for this insistence is so that the church will devote themselves to good works. People will devote themselves to something. The problem is, if they're not focused on devoting themselves to good works, people are likely to do evil. The opposite of speaking slander about people isn't being silent. It's speaking well of people. Find good things to say about others. Build them up. Do enough of that and people are going to instinctively like you and not even realize why. And it will reflect well on the Lord. It is a good work. Paul wants his teaching affirmed constantly so that the people will always be reminded that their place is to be doing good works and that they will be reminded of why they should want to do them. So what does good and profitable mean regarding good works? What do we get out of doing good works other than happy feels if we're helping someone? Eternal life with God sounds amazing enough. And it sounds like it should be the only consideration. But 2 Corinthians 5.10 tells us, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. 
Why is doing good works good and profitable? It is good because it honors and thanks God. It is profitable because it is how we earn heavenly rewards. I'd love to get into that, but I don't have the time. It's really a whole message of its own. For now, it's enough to know that we should be concerned about being seen as having done well for the kingdom when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And just very quickly, the judgment seat of Christ is for believers to judge their works. Okay? That's not the great white throne judgment where the saved are separated from the unsaved. That's two, two different things. This, we're talking about the judgment seat of Christ here. Okay? For all these reasons, we should be ready for every good work. So far, we've seen how, how we should be and why we should be that way. Now, point number three is how not to be. Okay? Going back to the point that Paul is instructing Titus on how to set up and instruct elders, he then adds some warnings against the kind of foolishness that will get elders and the church off track. Verses 9 to 11 read, But avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law, because they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a divisive person after a first and second warning, for you know that such a person has gone astray and is sinning. He is condemned, self-condemned, excuse me. In the church today, we be, tend to be slow to deal with certain things. Among them are the areas where church discipline should be enacted and where it might be necessary to rebuke or even remove someone from the fellowship. Of course, no one wants to do this, and we'd all be much happier if it were never, ever necessary. On the other hand, if it is necessary and we don't follow the instructions in the scripture, we do so at our own risk. Before we even look at the actual offenses here, we have to acknowledge the action demanded. Reject such a divisive person after a first and second warning. It doesn't say to tolerate it, and it doesn't say to ignore it. It says to root it out. What are we rooting out? There were a couple of things in play here. One was Christian Jews who took issue with Gentiles coming to Christ without converting to Judaism first, which was never a requirement except in their own minds. They were literally adding requirements to what it took to be saved. Another, this is just insane, another was the rabbis of the time engaged in a practice of literally asking foolish or pointless questions apparently to try to stump each other and impress people with their cleverness. One of the questions given, well, as an example, was in Latin because the writer who, who made the list hesitated to put it in English. And as close as I'm going to translate it is, will we go to the bathroom in heaven? I, I was just stunned by this. I'm like, this is what rabbis are talking about? Now that's dumb and it's immature. Is it something to separate someone from the fellowship over? No, if it's, I mean, it's not a one and done. It's not like, oh, you said that thing, you go. But if it's a practice, if you're wasting people's time and patience with it, if for some reason you're trying to put some kind of focus on this silliness, then, yeah, the leadership of the church is going to have to talk to you and say, what are we doing here? Um, Paul told the elders to avoid such things. Basically, divisiveness is not to be tolerated, particularly over foolishness. For the church to remain on mission, it has to be able to remain focused and not distracted by pointless things or attempts at adding requirements God did not give. And the response to the problem of divisive people, people who try to fracture the church, is that you warn them twice, and that's it. It sounds really harsh, but that's the Holy Spirit telling Paul what to write. That's, this is not a, our idea. 
This is from the Holy Spirit of God. We need to remember that. We don't have to like church discipline. We just have to do it or it wouldn't be in there. Now talk about adding things, okay? About 10 years ago, a celebrity pastor wrote a church how-to book that literally took the nation by storm. Churches everywhere were remodeling their makeups based on this book. And there were countless stories of people and leaders who were removed from their positions and even the church itself because they questioned this. Today, no one talks about that celebrity pastor or that book. I don't have any idea if those churches stuck to that non-biblical teaching, if they failed, or if they realized what they'd done and went back to the Word of God. But how sad that the Word of God wasn't enough, that they had to go after what is unprofitable and worthless, the cleverness of man. How many churches were divided and fractured, and why? Because the elders didn't do their job, as Paul instructs here, and removed the divisive. In some cases, the elders themselves were probably the ones bringing the problem. We are to be the people of the book. We are to live by the word of God, and we are to run our churches by the word of God. What we are not to do is to allow the cleverness of men to add to or take away from that word or change how we obey God, because one day, none of us will stand before that clever man, but every one of us will stand before the Lord and give an answer. We are to follow the instructions given to us almost 2,000 years ago that are as alive and applicable today as they were then. And we are to honor our God who saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. All right. I got a couple application points here. Um, are they going to go up? You don't have them. Okay. Moving right along. Number one, slander, gossip, fighting, disobedience, and envy. Do we see any of these things in ourselves? If we do, we need to talk to God and ask him to help root these things out. We can't live with them. We can't accommodate them. We've got to get rid of them. Number two, how do we feel about good works? If we're indifferent or worse, then we're running on empty or close to it. It's time to figure out why. Time's getting short. It's time to get off the bench. And number three, are we divisive? Are we resistant to instruction or leadership? The purpose of this letter is to instruct on how to make the church become more like Jesus. Not my will, but yours, he said to the Father. We must do the same. You know, John, uh, in Titus chapter 1, uh, they talk about one of the requirements for elders is able to teach. In church, he was able to teach us this morning and convict us this morning. Thank you so much, John. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Church, uh, one of the things that John talked about this morning is so, so key, is that we are to be a people that are to be focused 
on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's so much in this world that wants to pull our attention away from that. Uh, there's so much even, like last week, I talked about the attack. It's, it's not if, but when the attack happens. It'll happen from the outside of the church. It'll happen in the inside of the church. And sometimes it happens in our own heart. And the thing is, the key to the obedience of the lordship of Jesus Christ isn't necessarily looking for that next spectacular moment. And with the spirit of God, we will have spectacular moments. But it's being obedient in the mundane. And so uh, this morning, let's let God just search our hearts. Let's ask him, where are we not in alignment with you? And again, I'm going to give you an opportunity to right now, if you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, this is your time to say, Jesus, I want to place my full faith and trust in you. I want to follow you with my entire life. This is your moment to do just that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. And God, I just pray this morning for anybody here that doesn't know you as Savior. Lord Jesus, I just pray that you would draw them to you right now. In fact, as we pray, uh, if you are in this room right now and you are uncertain, you have a relationship with Jesus, you're uncertain uh, that if you were to stand before God, just as John talked about that today, if you were to stand before God and, and God would say, why should I let you into my kingdom? Would you know why? Would you know why? Would you know with a certainty that you would go into heaven? Well, if you don't have that certainty today, you can have that certainty. Just right now, just cry out to God, just, just in your heart, to say, Lord Jesus, I, I need you. I've realized I've done wrong in my life. I've sinned, and I need your forgiveness. The reason why we need your forgiveness is because we can't do anything to prove ourselves to God. We have a debt that can never be repaid. But praise Jesus that he came 2,000 years ago, fully God, fully man, to die on the cross, to pay for your sin debt in full. And he rose from the dead three days later because he's the perfect sinless sacrifice. If you want to have that assurance of being a son and daughter of the king, if you want that assurance that you're forgiven, if you want that assurance that you're going to heaven, just right now, Ask Jesus Christ to step into your life. Place your full faith and trust in him alone that he died for your sins, that he rose from the dead. Just do that right now. So Lord Jesus, I just pray for anybody in this room that is placing their faith and trust in you, that their full faith and trust would indeed be on you. In fact, with nobody looking around, if this morning you're like, you know what, that's me. I had doubts or I knew I did not uh, follow Jesus Christ. I knew I didn't place my faith and trust in him, but now I am. Today's the day. If that is you, with nobody looking around, we, we just slip up your hands, that's me. That's me. I'm placing my faith and trust in Jesus. I, I want to place my faith and trust in him alone. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Lord Jesus, I just thank you for those that are saying yes to you this morning. Lord God, I just pray that you would help them now walk uh, the rest of their life following you. And Lord, I pray for everybody in this room right now that you would search our hearts. It, the theme this morning has been that you are leader, that you are Lord, uh, that, that, that you are in charge. So God, I pray for full submission of our hearts right now. Full submission uh, in areas maybe that we've been trying to be our own boss. Full submission on your mission. God, I pray that you would break our hearts for those that don't know you. Uh, you break our hearts for our coworkers, for our neighbors, for our family members. Uh, God, I pray this city would change because your spirit is moving through people and your gospel is going out. So God, search our hearts right now. 
Lord, bring our hearts into submission to you right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode. If you would like to know more about Kenosha City Church, then check us out online at kenosha.church or on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Kenosha City Church. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to follow us so that you never have to miss an episode. At Kenosha City Church, we are not perfect people, but real people being made new through Jesus.